Uh, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll close with our eighth and final presentation on the three angels' messages, giving a bit of a recap and a call to action. So let's pray. I'm going to kneel invite you to bow your heads. Sweet Jesus, thank you that you have been so, so faithful to us as we've been looking through the topic of the three angels' messages in the context of Revelation's cosmic conflict. And we're so thankful for the fact, uh, through what we heard last night, that Jesus wins, uh, that the battle has been won, that the dragon has been cast down, and that he has but a short time to continue in his wily ways. But as we reflect upon the, the big picture of the Three Angels' messages today, I pray that you would bless us with clarity, uh, reminding us of key points that we heard throughout this week, and giving us a call to action on how to make this message our own. So bless us, O oh God, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We, so... I, there's a quote, and we're going to read this quote here in just a moment, from Ella White, talking about how the third angel's message is indeed the message of justification by faith in verity. It is absolutely that message. But the more that I've studied, the more I'm convinced that the first, second, and third angel's message preach the message of justification by faith in verity. And so uh, I am going to be kind of highlighting that. We'll see some recaps of some points we made throughout this week, and then we'll make a close here. Uh, But Revelation 12 reveals the remnant, and Revelation 14 shares the message and mission of that remnant. And so we need to have a clear understanding of our marching order. So I just want to kind of give us, again, a recap of the highlights that we've had over the course of this week. This This is from First Selected Messages. Some of our brethren have expressed fears that we dwell too much upon the subject of justification by faith, but I hope and pray that none will needlessly be needlessly alarmed. There is no danger in presenting this doctrine as is set forth in the scriptures. And if there had not been a remissness, a lack in the past to properly instruct the people of God, there would not now be a necessity of calling special attention to it. Now, maybe you've heard people today that say, well, that's not present truth, or they're not talking about what's most important, and that's, uh, it's unfortunate that we make really judgmental statements like that, by the way, when people are laboring over messages and presenting them before the people of God, and then they get, you know, flack from the brethren because they don't think it was present truth-y enough. Um, that's, yeah, it's very subjective opinion, largely. But Ellen White dealt with this in her day. Uh, people were saying, what these guys, Jones and Wagner, are preaching about lifting up the gospel, that's not what the world needs in the closing end-time present truth message. You're dwelling too much on that, they said. And she says, there is no reason to be concerned about that. This needs to be brought before our people. And had we not been lacking in making this emphasis in our message up until now, we wouldn't be making an even greater emphasis of it at this stage. It would be a steady emphasis the entire time. But notice, there is never not to be an emphasis of the message of justification by faith. Are you noticing that? I think this is very important for us to wrap our minds around this. Um, because that was a big issue going into the 1888 General Conference was uh, the law in Galatians was a topic that was deeply debated. Is this really important? Is this not really important? And um, Jones and Wagner had their perspective on what it was. It was speaking of the moral law, the schoolmaster, the tutor to lead us to Christ in the law in Galatians. 
And G.I. Butler and Uriah Smith were vehemently opposed to that and said, no, it's talking about the ceremonial law. Because if you take that away from us, if you, don't, if you say that the moral law is part of that schoolmaster, you're taking away one of our favorite arguments against people who don't agree with us on the Sabbath. So they were afraid of losing one of their prized possessions on arguing with people instead of embracing what God was trying to show us as a movement. Ellen White was shown later. It is, it is speaking of both but mostly about the moral law. But anyway, so there were a lot of political issues going on that led to the rejection of the 1888 message that wasn't just that. But she continues. I'll digress and stay disciplined here. She says, The exceeding great and precious promises given us in the Holy Scriptures have been lost sight of to a great extent, just as the enemy of all righteousness designed that they should be. He has cast his own dark shadow between us and our God, that we may not see the true character of God, which is why it's so important for us as Seventh-day Adventists to be highlighting the true character of God in everything that we share. The Lord has proclaimed himself to be merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Then she says, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. They weren't asking a question of math. They were saying, is this really that big a deal? Why are they talking about it so much? We're not really preaching the three angels' messages when we're talking about the gospel all the time. So they ask her, is this really something we should focus on is the real question they're asking. But it was specific. Is this the third angel's message? And her response was, I, and I've answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. It is absolutely the third angel's message. But I'm fully convinced that if someone had asked her, is the message of justification by faith the first angel's message? She would say, in verity. And if she had asked, is the second angel's message, is justification by faith fitting into the second angel's message? She would also say, in verity. All three messages are highlighting this gospel uh, proclamation. So let's go back and do a bit of a summary of what we covered this week. Not everyone has been here in all those messages. So if you were to do a poll of most Seventh-day Adventists today and you were to ask them what the first angel's message is, the majority answer you would receive is, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And I would protest and say that is an incorrect answer because the first angel's message begins with the everlasting gospel to go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And the charge to fear God and give glory to Him is the call to action. It's the appeal of that everlasting gospel sermon. You wouldn't go up to somebody on a street corner and say, fear God and give glory to Him. The response is going to be, that person's weird. And second of all, who's God that I should care? But if you lift before the world a suffering Messiah in the everlasting gospel, that will lead somebody to fear God and to give glory to Him and to be able to live a life that honors Him in the midst of the judgment. Does that make sense? So we have to make sure that we're getting our perspective correct here. Uh, I've already kind of jumped into some of this message already, the first angel's message. You see it there. So, and when we give that answer, that it's just fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come, we miss two super important components to the first angel's message, the everlasting gospel and the Sabbath. The Sabbath is also laid out in the first angel's message where it says, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. That's a direct quote from the Sabbath commandment, and it's there for a reason. 
One of our calls as the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as we believe a movement, a prophetic movement of destiny, is to awaken the world to the beauty and to the blessing of the Seventh-day Sabbath. So that's another thing that we need to be lifting before the world. And when we give that very simplified answer, though it's true that's a component of the first angel's message, it would not be incorrect to say that that is the first angel's message. There's a difference there. Now, the everlasting gospel. Uh, There's a quote in Manuscript 32, 1896. It was very helpful for me to kind of contextualize what this everlasting gospel should entail says, the message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven, speaking of Revelation 14, 6 and 7, particularly 6, is the everlasting gospel. And then she says, the same gospel that was declared in Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So what gospel was preached in the Garden of Eden? That the promised Messiah, the promised seed of Eve, would crush the serpent's head But what would happen to him in the process? Have you you read it? His heel will be bruised. He's going to be wounded. He will suffer as he overcomes the, uh, the serpent. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 that this gospel will go into all the world as a witness and then the end will come. Well, what gospel was Jesus? Because he says this gospel, the one that he's preaching. What did he preach? I'm going to suffer. And did the disciples like that message? Absolutely not. That makes no sense, Jesus. You're supposed to kick the Romans out of here, and we're supposed to sit on the throne next to you on the right and on the left. And here's the ironic thing. When James and John come up to Jesus and they say, Lord, we want you to give us whatever we ask. He says, well, what is it that you're looking for? And they say, we want to, see, we want to sit, each of us, one at your right and one at your left in your glory. And then Jesus gives a response. Does anyone remember what that response is? He says, you don't know what you're asking. And boy, did they not know what they were asking. Because what they were really asking was to be crucified with Jesus on the right and on the left. Because that's when he manifests his glory. They did not understand what they were asking. Many of us are asking things that we don't understand either, unfortunately. So this is the gospel. This is the everlasting gospel that has to go before the world, a suffering Messiah. We covered that in our first presentation. All those are on the Heartland YouTube channel. You can watch them there. And I can also give you slides if you'd like for any of those for any previous uh, presentations that we've had. So Jesus will suffer. We have to have that message lifted before the world. And seeing a suffering Messiah will lead people to want to fear him, give glory to him, and to be able to live in the midst of his judgment unafraid, as it says in 1 John. But what about this idea of fear God and give glory to him? What does that mean, to be afraid of God? Well, we're told this in the upward look. The love of God ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend him. And I love the chronology of this statement. She says that when the love of God is presented, it will lead people to fear God, but not to be filled with abject fear of him, but to fear to offend him and to to upset him, to disappoint him, to not live a life that would honor what he's done for us. That's what's being referred to here in the idea of fearing God and giving glory to him, not living an experience of abject fear. She says, those who are truly converted will not venture heedlessly upon the borders of any evil, lest they grieve the spirit of God and are left to their own way to be filled with their own doings. 
The Word of God is the guidebook, turn not from its pages to to depend upon the human agent. So it's not abject fear that's referred to here. It's a reverent and thankful response to the powerful message of the gospel. It leads one to want to give glory to him. But notice also that one has to encounter the love of God first before they even could fear God and give glory to him. No one is going to fear God and give glory to him until they first encounter the gospel. Hence why God has the everlasting gospel preached first. So abject fear robs us of a clear picture of the love of God, and an absence of godly fear can rob us of a true perspective of our relation to God and how to follow Him. He's not your fishing buddy, right? There's a difference in our relation to almighty, holy, righteous, and just God, and we should tread you know, carefully in that regard. Not that God's looking to be against us and have you know, outfits of rage, but the point is we need to approach Him differently than we approach others. In an endearing, intimate, loving way, right? But there's still a difference between him and the other people we interact with. But then we're told to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Again, this is a direct quote of the Sabbath commandment, which implies that we, as the remnant church of God, as people who were given that, that last day message, are to give a call to the world not only to respond to the everlasting gospel by fearing God and giving glory to him, but we're also to call them to worship him on his holy Sabbath and to rest in Christ's accomplished work. And there are three primary memorials of his accomplished work that we see in the Old Testament. And I've given them in a little short list here. The Sabbath is a memorial of Christ's accomplished work, that he created us, Exodus 20, he redeemed us, Deuteronomy 5, and he's the one who transforms us, Ezekiel chapter 20. And again, we had presentations on this where we elaborated. We elaborated on how to live in the midst of the investigative judgment, Uh, We did presentations on all of these individual components. I'm not going to go into all the details as I did earlier already, okay? So the Sabbath is a memorial of fact that we can't create ourselves, we can't redeem ourselves, and we can't even transform ourselves, and that we rest in Christ's ability to do all of these things. Is that righteousness by faith or not? absolutely righteousness by faith. So the Sabbath is not legalism. It is as righteousness by faith as it gets. You are resting in the accomplished work of Christ. And as a people, we're to call the world to enter into that rest. And this becomes very significant as we look at the third angel's message. I want to read a quote here. This is from the book we talked about earlier, The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day by Sigve Tonstad. It's one of the best books we have on the Sabbath, particularly in seeing the gospel and the love of God at the heart of the Sabbath and his intention of giving it to us. It's kind of a big book. It's a theological book, but it's gorgeous, a lot of it. He says, By the act of hallowing the seventh day, God drives the stake of divine presence into the soil of human time. Again, what's implied here is that God is inserting himself into human time, making himself available in the space of human time. So in a very real sense then, God is bringing heaven to earth on the seventh day, every seven days. And so we're told in John chapter 17 and verse 3 that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And you don't have to wait until heaven to begin to enjoy the joys of of eternal life. Amen? You can begin to experience that in the here and now. And I love that. Um, In fact, I actually had a slide on that. Sorry about that. Because eternal life is knowing God personally and intimately and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And I can begin to experience heaven here. We take that experience with us there. 
Tonstad continues, the reason why he refrains from further activity on the seventh day is that he's found the object of his love and has no need for any further works. Who's that? That's you. He ceases to enjoy what he has made, and that's us. He found what he was looking for in us and had no need of any further works. So the seventh day signifies what is most essential to know about God. God ceases from working in order to enjoy the company of the person that God has created. Suggesting that the seventh day speaks as much about the value of human beings to God as of God's valuation of human life. What lies in the foreground of the seventh day's first mention in the Bible is God's gift, not human obligation. So the Sabbath is not introduced to humanity by God saying, hey, you better not or you're in trouble. Go to your room and stay there for 24 hours. Stay put. Right? This isn't what's going on here. This isn't iPad parenting. Just keep yourself busy. Daddy's busy. Right? That's not what he's doing. He's giving you a gift of his presence and fellowship with him, and it communicates our own value. The New Living Translation uh, translates Mark 2.27 in such an amazing and beautiful way. It says, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. How many Seventh-day Adventists are there today who really need to hear this gospel message? The Sabbath was made to meet your needs. It's not the busiest day of your week to meet everybody else's needs to ensure that God will like me. Workaholism is murdering our Sabbath experience. We really don't know how to rest as Seventh-day Adventists. The people we celebrate in our movement historically are the people who work themselves to death. If you work hard, you're really honoring God. Now, I'm not saying we should be sluggards either, but many of us really do not know how to sit still and rest in the presence of Jesus, which is ironic and also devastating because we're supposed to be the ones giving that message to the world, and we don't even know how to receive the blessing we have. We really, really, really need to nail this down as a movement in our individual experiences. So the Sabbath isn't introduced in Exodus chapter 20 with God telling us what to do. The Sabbath commandment in Exodus 20 is calling us to remember the Sabbath day. Well, what Sabbath day? The one that communicates your value. The one that reminds you that you are loved, that you are special. That someone brought you into existence for a purpose and they desire time with you. That's what it means to remember the Sabbath. It is as, Tonsack continues, it is as if we hear God speaking, I am ceasing on the seventh day, not only that you may acknowledge and love me, but in order to make it known that I recognize and love you. That's why he ceases. Why do you cease? Now, how does it make you feel when you hear that? What thoughts do you have about God when you hear how he feels about you? You can give verbal feedback. You can talk in church. It's biblical. Go for it. You have to talk a little bit louder, but I appreciate you at least said something. I still didn't get it. Sorry, bro. Why? So why would God feel that way about me? Is that what you're thinking? Okay. Anyone else? Special. That's great. Anyone else? Shame sometimes. Why is that? Okay. 
oh wow, yeah, God's done so much for me. Why would he think that highly of me? It's, it's kind of confusing, isn't it? Because we live in this experience of bro- maybe, maybe, maybe. That's why God gives us that gift every seven days. Because we're so prone to forget the fact that we're already loved. We're already accepted. Many of us are spending six days of our week trying to prove to God, to our parents, to the gym teacher that said we'd never amount to anything, and everybody else, to God, our parents, and everybody else and ourselves, that we're good enough. And God says on every seventh day, would you knock that off? You're already good enough. I already love you. I already place a value upon you, and I need you to rest in that. We're working ourselves to death, aren't we? And, we, and we're doing it largely because we're trying to prove that I, I'm enough. And God says, no, 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 forget that, forget that. I would like for you to engage in God-honoring labor. I would love for you to do that. That's a tremendous witness. But don't do that to try to convince me to love you. I'm giving you the Sabbath to remind you I already love you. Amen? But our people don't know this. That's how we should feel every seven days. So the entire purpose of the Sabbath is to give you a weekly reminder of this. Your life matters. You have significance in this world. You are the object of a divine love, an unending love. So God is calling us to cease our labors of trying to prove to Him, to ourselves, and anyone else who didn't believe in us that we're enough and that we're worthy. The context of the Sabbath and its origins makes it abundantly clear that you're already good enough. I already love you. I already place a high estimation upon you. And this precious gift of rest is available to every human being. And even after the fall, we have access to this level of fellowship with God. Isn't that beautiful? And again, every one of these things that we're pointing out here, there were longer messages that elaborated on each of them. The second angel. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Well, one of the things that's going to cause Babylon to fall, and I think the primary thing that's going to cause Babylon to fall, is the everlasting gospel and testimony of God's love and the fact that he already accepts humanity. You don't need to work to show God you're good enough. You don't need to pay for your own sins. You don't, you understanding? Like this, this message of the everlasting gospel exposes the futility of Babylonian religion. And Babylon falls in its presence. This is why many of our people are not seeing the power of the third angel's message rocking the world right now. Because we thought the purpose of the three angel's messages was to show how bad Babylon is. We're so busy kicking the Pope. We're so busy beating down the people we don't agree with. See, it's Saturday, not Sunday. See, they got bad religion. We got good religion. And we never see the gospel in any of it. And we wonder why it's not changing people's lives. It's true that Babylon's dangerous. It's exceedingly dangerous. I'll give you some of the things that concern me about the teachings there. But the point is, if we are not preaching the message of justification by faith throughout the three angels' messages, we're doing a disservice to the three angels' messages, and they won't have the desired effect. That's the point. All right. So while the storefront of Babylon in this prophecy is the papacy at this stage in earth's history and its war on the gospel, there are many other Babylonian movements in existence in the world today, and we can't lose sight of that. 
Babylonian movements are still in existence. And unfortunately, there can even be Adventist versions of Babylonian thinking. I have to convince God to love me. I need to work even harder to show God I was worth the love that he showed to me. That's straight up Babylonian. Are you understanding? We have our own people that are drinking the wine of Babylon while seeking to serve God according to what the word of God says. But they don't know that he already loves them and that this is not a performance-based religion. This is not an appeasement-based religion. That's not how this operates. All right. So, and again, we went into a lengthy uh, discussion about Babylon and that whole history uh, in a previous presentation. So here's the things that concern God, and I believe should concern us, regarding the distortion of his character before the world that are being taught through Babylon and how those fly in the face of what we've already seen in the first angel's message and will see in the third angel's message. The teaching of eternal torment and purgatory, that God roasts and toasts people for eternity. God is love, but God also makes people consciously be tortured for the ceaseless ages of eternity. But there's also the teaching of purgatory, which brings in another scary teaching of the fact that the church controls your destiny. If you're a member of the church, you're saved. If you're not a member of the church, you're lost. We don't believe that. And there's a danger here, and there's even kind of a question mark, because what do you do with backslidden members? Their name's on the book. They're members, but they're not living a life at all that honors God. Well, that doesn't really matter because they're church members. So the way we'll make up for that is they'll just burn it off in this halfway house between when they die, and when they're eventually going to end up in heaven, to really kind of make things right at the end of the day. They'll have to pay for it before they can finally enter the glories of bliss. This does not paint a picture of the fairness and justice of God at all, right? Denying the right and example of leadership and marriage, the celibacy, charge of celibacy to the priests, baptism by sprinkling instead of immersion, right? This idea of dying completely to self, being buried into Christ's death and raised to newness of life is removed. We lose that privilege through that teaching. Infant baptism and the consequences, if not. If a baby dies and hasn't been sprinkled, it will be lost. The veneration of saints and idolizing people. That you pray to saints. That you can't actually have direct access to God. You need to pray through people who are holier than you are. And they're the ones that may give you permission into God's presence. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We fully believe that you can pray directly to Jesus right now. And he is happy to hear from you because of the merits of the righteousness of Christ. You have full and complete access to God the Father. A priest forgiving sins, you have to confess to a human instead of going directly to God. We're told in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins to God, not to a priest, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word, by the way, for forgive in 1 John 1, 9 is actually to separate us from our sins. He is faithful and just to separate us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Discouraging personal study of the word of God for the laity. We fully encourage people studying the word of God and growing and being nurtured and edified by that. The church controls your destiny. We focus on that. Focus on man as the head of the church and denying the priesthood of all believers. We believe in the biblical teaching of that, uh, the priesthood of all believers. Using fear to lead people to serve God. We saw that that's a selfish motive and doesn't work. You can pay for your sins. Jesus is crucified every time the wafer is broken in transubstantiation. Theistic evolution is one that I have the, one of the biggest problems with. This idea that God created through the means of evolution. So that God created through the means of death, of disease, of destruction, and so forth. I cannot subscribe to that. And it flies in the face of the gospel. And it flies in the face of the first angel's message. 
Right? The idea that we were created with a purpose as God said that we were created, changing God's law and so forth. So the Dark Ages theology rendered people incapable of loving God because they were terrified of Him, and it led them to hate Him, and one cannot truly worship when the heart is filled with abject fear. And when people hear the truth of the first angel's message, it shows the futility of the things that we've just heard. Interestingly enough, it's at the height of the darkness that God brings the gospel to Martin Luther and other reformers. But the light shines brightest when it's needed the most, and that's in the mid-1800s when the Advent movement comes on the scene. And the beautiful thing is, beloved, if you don't know this, the message that we hold so dear is the best suited to reach Muslims, atheists, and even bringing healing and freedom to Catholics and Protestants alike who have unhealthy pictures of God. It is a privilege to believe the things that you believe, and the world is longing to hear what it is that you hold so dear. We have a perfect ability. We have just a, a perfect doctrine that can help people to have that type of connection. God has raised up our movement to set the record straight, which I think is a prophetic movement of destiny. All right, listen to this. This is from the Great Controversy. A prayerful study of the Bible would show Protestants the real character of the papacy and would cause them to abhor and to shun it. But many are so wise in their own conceit that they feel no need of humbly seeking God that they may be led into the truth. Although priding themselves on their enlightenment, they are ignorant both of the scriptures and of the power of God. They must have some means of quieting their consciences, and they seek that which is the least spiritual and humiliating. So I want to believe that I'm a good person, and I want to believe that, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I really don't want, to have to, I don't want to have to look in the mirror and face myself. I don't want to see my brokenness. I don't want to see my nothingness. And so we kind of want that easy path that doesn't involve that self-reflection. And so here's what she says. What they desire is a method of forgetting God, which shall pass as a method of remembering him. And the papacy is well adapted to meet the wants of all of these. It is prepared for two classes of mankind, embracing nearly the whole world. Those who would be saved by their merits and those who would be saved in their sins. Here is the secret of its power. So the question is, are you and I drinking the wine of Babylon? Maybe we don't believe in the sacraments or the veneration of saints, but are we exalting self or giving a picture of God that would lead people to reject him? And I would make a charge today that there are many people today in our own beloved movement who aren't aware of the fact that they are drinking that same Roman wine. We're engaged in syncretism. We're taking principles of Babylonian religion and infusing them within the framework of Adventism. And it could be that this is why we do not have peace in our hearts. It could be that this is why we don't have the joy of the Lord. And it could be that this is why we're so judgmental of the people around us. Because the only way I find escape from my guilty conscience is pointing out how bad the other guy is. At least I'm not like him or like her. At least I eat better, dress better, talk better. At least I show up to the mission story even before Sabbath school when these people can't even show up to church on time. Are you understanding? Many times those snarky and judgmental mindsets are birthed out of our own insecurity. 
And we desperately need to revisit the first angel's message and to see the everlasting gospel and what it can do for us. Then we get to the third angel. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, the gospel is even found in here, because who is it that had to drink the wine of the wrath of God that we talked about last night? Jesus. Jesus did this in our stead, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He should be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So God makes it very clear that to remain in this system and to receive its mark of authority has dire and eternal consequences. A.T. Jones, in his 1893 General Conference messages, makes the point that rebutting the false view of the gospel and the teachings of Babylon, which is doomed to fail, is the third angel's message. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, I find it very interesting that those who receive the mark of the beast, which by default means they've rejected God's invitation to rest in Christ's accomplished work, have no rest day or night. This is not talking about an infinitum torturous experience. We don't believe that as Seventh-day Adventists. So what is it that deprives them of rest day and night in their experience? They have not entered into the rest of Christ in his accomplished work. Again, the gospel in plain sight in the third angel's message, before we get to verse 12, is the logical consequence of refusing the rest that's available to them in Christ. Then we get to verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here comes the grand conclusion. A people of God who keep the commandments of God. Yesterday morning we talked about how that happens in the believer's experience in the covenants. Because of their encounter with the faith of Jesus. So the three angels' messages really are a chronology of God's gospel work before the second coming. Which brings us to the faith I live by 111. What is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, ladies, that counts you too, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we see our nothingness and our desperate need of its power source outside of us, we are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. The faith of Jesus, it is talked of, but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. She's quoting 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is us receiving the faith of of Jesus. And we elaborated on that extensively last night. E.J. Wagner again, God chooses men not for what they are, but for what he can make of them. And there is no limit to what he can make of even the meanest and most depraved if they're only willing and believe his word. Amen. So the two bookends of the three angels' messages are the gospel. 
the everlasting gospel and the faith of Jesus, and we can't lose sight of this. This is what contextualizes the entire message, and every issue you see that doesn't fully sound like the gospel still relates to the gospel in some form or fashion. This cosmic conflict is laid out in the second angel's message and the beginning of the third angel's message. The war against the gospel and God's desire for humanity to be saved in the midst of a grand deception taking place upon the earth. God in His great love speaking to humanity. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The only way that people can be viewed as having kept the commandments in the past or as being capable of keeping them in the present or the future is because they have first encountered the faith of Jesus. Only His life, sufferings, death, and resurrection can declare and make one righteous. We talked about this on the, uh, the topic of the investigative judgment the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed, right? The, we are declared righteous by Jesus' life being credited to ours. And the righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The act of us actually being made righteous is done through the righteous life of Jesus. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. This is such a beautiful teaching because what's implied here is you are declared righteous while he's making you righteous. That God views you as righteous while he's making your righteous life a reality, while he's tangibly delivering Jesus' righteous life to you. So what will keep people from seeking to save themselves in the Mark of the Beast crisis is by seeing what Christ has already done for them and that they will be kept by His grace. So the crisis at the end of time is the last showdown of man's efforts versus the gospel, from fig leaves back to the robe of righteousness. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says that he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So in summation, the Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through Elders Wagner and Jones, speaking the 1888 message. This message was to bring more prominently before the world, not just Adventists, but before the world, the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ. Have we been doing that this week? That's right. Inviting people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. Are we still in danger of that today? They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts upon men imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of a spirit in a large measure. We talked about this yesterday. When this message is preached, this is what marshals the latter rain to fall with even greater power upon the people of God. It's heaven's endorsement of a message given to the world, and we're also told the latter rain will come through much fervent prayer. We should be praying for both, but you can't pray for the latter rain and not preach the message that leads to the latter rain. Are you understanding? We have to do both. 
The uplifted Savior is to appear in his, in his efficacious work as a lamb slain, sitting upon the throne to dispense the priceless covenant blessings, the benefits he died to purchase for every soul who should believe on him. The message of the gospel of his grace that was be given to the church in clear and distinct lines so that the world should no longer say that Seventh-day Adventists talk the law of the law, but do not teach or believe Christ. You heard that, right? The reason why the world is saying Seventh-day Adventists are a bunch of legalists is because we have not made Christ the emphasis of our message. They would not be able to say that if we preach the gospel as God intended. For years, the church has been looking to man and expecting much from man, but not looking to Jesus, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Therefore, God gave his servants a testimony that presented the truth as it is in Jesus. And that's how we are called to present any Adventist doctrine, the truth as it is in Jesus which is the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines. This is the testimony that must go through the length and breadth of the world. It presents the law and the gospel, binding up the two in a perfect whole. You don't have to choose the law or the gospel. The purpose of the 1888 message was to put the two together in such a powerful way that you don't know where one ends and the other begins. They teach one whole message. Jones says this in his 1893 uh, General Conference sermons. Where there is not only a belief in God's word, but a submission of the will to him, where the heart is yielded to him and the affections fixed upon him, there is faith. Another place in that same set of sermons. That is the truth of justifying faith, and that is righteousness by faith. It is a faith that works, and thank the Lord for it. It is not a faith that believes something from a distance or that keeps the truth of God in the outer court and then seeks by his own efforts to make up the lack. It is not that. No, it is faith that works. It itself is working. It has a divine power in it to manifest God's will in man before the world. That is righteousness by faith, the righteousness which faith obtains, which it receives and which it holds, the righteousness of God. And I want to repeat this that we talked about last night from E.J. Wagner in the Everlasting Covenant. And so it went on throughout the plagues. This is what happened when we reject this most precious message. And so it went throughout the plagues, speaking of Egypt, all the steps in each case are not recorded. But we see that it was the long-suffering and mercy of God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the same preaching that comforted the hearts of many in the days of Jesus made others more bitter against him. The raising of Lazarus from the dead fixed the determination in the hearts of the unbelieving Jews to kill him. The judgment will reveal the fact that everyone who has in hardness of heart rejected the Lord has done so in the face of the revelation of his mercy. And we see that revelation of mercy so clearly in the three angels' messages. And the revelation of his mercy in the third angel's message is repeated again in Revelation 18, we're told. That the message of Revelation chapter 18 that was read in Scripture reading is the repetition of the third angel's message with even greater power. The last message of mercy. And then, 
When you read this, that everyone who ends up being lost is still going to have to face a revelation of his mercy before they pass on to death. We mentioned this last night. It's as if Jesus is saying, if anybody is going to end up lost by taking the road to perdition, they're going to have to trip over my dead body to get there. Jesus is in his mercy is going to be revealed to every soul before they close their eyes for the last time. He's been tenaciously pursuing the lost throughout salvation history, and this beautiful and most precious message is his last opportunity to bring in whosoever will, whosoever will before the door of mercy closes. But as it says in John chapter 13 and verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you make a choice to be lost, you will see his love to the very day that you die. Think about the privilege that God has given us to share this message of mercy with a lost and dying world. He could have sent literal angels, but he doesn't. He's calling you, and he's calling me, which means that we cannot keep this message to ourselves. Well, I'm not a preacher. I don't know how to preach this message. I will give you the slides, and you can keep studying. But all of us are called to live out and to share this message. They're on YouTube. You can have the slides and preach it yourself. You can read the same things that we read to come to these conclusions this week. God can and will use you. God longs to use you. But do you actually believe that today? Christ's strength is made perfect in your weakness. So feeling weak in sharing the gospel does not mean you're not called to share the gospel. It means God will get even more glory out of you sharing it than he will through someone who's been sharing it for a million years and can do it from memory. Are you with me? God needs all of you guys. Not a one of you can he spare to lose. He needs you. So here's my charge to us today in closing. Preach the everlasting gospel. Preach the message of the pre-advent judgment. Preach the Sabbath. Preach the fallacy of Babylon's gospel. Preach the validity of God's law and the power of the covenants to change the life. Preach the righteousness of Christ, which makes the law reality in the believer's life. And preach the faith of Jesus, which is our only hope. And I'm not just talking to the Theo majors here. That's all of us. Now, I'll close with this. Some of you may not know where to start. So here are some resources I would strongly recommend that you acquaint yourselves with that will help give you the infrastructure to know how to preach this message to the world and why this stuff really matters. The book Return to the Latter Rain, Volume 1 by Ron Duffield. This gives the history of the 1888 message, what was going on from 1844 into 1888 that made it such a big issue, and what happened as a result of preaching that message in 1888, 89, 90, 91, 92, and 93. Now, his book ends in 1891, but the second book that you see in the list here, Wounded in the House of His Friends, picks up from there and gives some more details. It kind of condenses Volume 1 and adds what will eventually be in Volume 2, some of that history going a little bit later in time. But the point is, God was was doing a very special work to prepare people to stand in the day of God, to be ready to stand in the crisis that's to come. And unfortunately, the truth of the matter is we went to war with the gospel and we won. And that's why we're still here. But God does not give up on this movement. And there's a gospel resurgence that will finish the work for his glory. I fully believe that with all of my heart and all of my mind. So Wounded in the House of His Friends gives more of those details. And you will be blown away when you read what Ella White and the people who were there say happened. 
Unfortunately, historians have muddied the waters on this circumstance and in an unfair fashion, but this is primary sources. These are the people who were there that he quotes and what Ellen White herself says. Read through the 1888 materials. Took me a few months, but it's totally worth it. See what she says in the chronology of what was going on before, during, and after the 1888 General Conference sessions. It's so important to know this because this is what God was doing to prepare people in the midst of a coming crisis. Lessons on Faith by A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. Living by Faith by A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. A.T. Jones' 1893 General Conference Sermons. The Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection by A.T. Jones. The Everlasting Covenant by E.J. Wagner. And the Armadale Sermons, or the other title for the print version of the book, is In the Spirit's Power by W.W. Prescott. That's the one I talked about earlier this week where he was preaching the Adventist message in evangelistic series with Jesus at the center of every teaching. You can see how he did that and how he approached that. But we were told that the latter rain was falling in 1889, 90, 91, 92, 93. It was happening in the Adventist church. But it ceased. And so we don't need to come, we don't need to like, you know, search a bunch of science laboratories and figure out how to create it again. You can't create it. Go back to what God did then and do the same thing and it will happen again. And I believe with even greater power. I believe it with all of my heart. God will take this movement of destiny into kingdom glory and God is going to bless this movement. Has this made sense today? Have we seen Jesus this week? If we haven't, I have failed you miserably. Beloved, I encourage you, study this. Make it your study, make it your own, because each of us individually need to understand this. Don't just hope that some preacher figures it out. Don't just hope that sometimes your pastor will figure it out and preach that message later. God needs you, each of you, to make this message your own, because you understanding this. We're told that the seal of God is a settling into the truth. Well, if you're just waiting for your pastor to preach the truth, how are you going to receive the seal of God? You individually are going to have to take ownership of this, and you're going to be swept off your feet with the beauty of the gospel by reading these things. I'll let you cheat. If you go to ellawhiteaudio.org, you can get audiobooks for many of these. ellawhiteaudio.org. Ron Duffield's book is quite large, and the footnotes give the most important information. And when you listen to his book on ellawhiteaudio.org, it's free. They would appreciate your donations to help them keep doing what they're doing, but it's technically free. If you go to L.Y. Audio and listen to it, the guy reads the footnotes in the context of the paragraph, which makes it really easy to absorb. I cheated. I listened to it once or twice, I think. I think twice. And so you can listen through these sermons of A.T. Jones. You can listen through the books. Uh, Someone has gone through the painstaking effort of reading it into a microphone. They've done quality editing on it, and you can listen for yourself. ellenwhiteaudio.org. So if you can't read books in person, you can do it that way. But either way, I encourage you, familiarize yourself with this content. It's that important. Okay? Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for blessing us with Jesus, for giving all of heaven a one gift, for the most precious message that you've given to us as a movement to awaken us to the beauty of the gospel, of the power of Jesus Christ to transform the life. And Lord, this is what the world needs to hear and see right now. And I pray that each of us would take individual accountability for the fact that you have not yet come. By better understanding this message and sharing it with a loud cry to the world around us. This is our plea, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.